as we come back to Titus chapter 1. And I'm going to be reading down through verse 9. We'll start at verse 1 and go down through 9. Let's hear the word of the Lord. Paul, a servant of God and an apostle of Christ Jesus, for the sake of the faith of God's elect and their knowledge of the truth which accords with godliness, and hope of eternal life which God, who never lies, promised before the ages began, and at the proper time manifested in his word through the preaching with which I have been entrusted by the command of God our Savior to Titus, my true child, in a common faith. Grace and peace from God the Father and Christ Jesus our Lord. This is why I left you in Crete, so that you might put what remained into order and appoint elders in every town as I directed you. If anyone is above reproach, the husband of one wife, his children are believers and are not open to charges of debauchery or insubordination. For an overseer as God's servant must be above reproach. He must not be arrogant or quick-tempered or a drunkard, or violent, or greedy for gain, but hospitable, a lover of good, self-controlled, upright, holy, and disciplined. He must hold firm to the trustworthy word as taught, so that he may be able to give instruction in sound doctrine, and also to rebuke those who contradict it. The grass withers, the flower fades, but the word of our God abides forever. Please be seated. Let's go to God in prayer. Pray for me as I preach this text. And uh, pray for yourselves as you sit under the proclamation of our God this morning. Let's pray. Almighty God, our Heavenly Father, it is a great privilege to preach the gospel. Yet also, Lord, a very uh, awesome responsibility. As I know, the teachers will incur a stricter judgment. Father, I do pray for your grace as I preach this text this morning. I am not sufficient, Lord, to do anything apart from your help, so I ask for your help today. Pray for the congregation that you would take away from us any biases, any prejudices, any unbelief that we might have, and that you would cause the word to go forth powerfully by the work of your spirit in our hearts and lives. Oh, God, hear us, we pray, and grant your grace. In Jesus' name, amen. This morning, I want to start by asking you all a question. How much confidence do you have in the gospel to bring change in the lives of people? How much does the resurrection of Christ so influence you that you're full of confidence, you're full of hope, no matter what you're facing or no matter what you're dealing with, that is your constant. That Jesus Christ has risen from the grave, he's defeated sin, he's defeated death, and he lives forever at the right hand of God. Do you embrace the gospel so much so that it influences your mind? Well, here is another question. How do you evaluate the things that are going on in our nation and the church, by the plumb line of God's law. How do you evaluate it? I don't care if you're a a Democrat, Republican, Independent, uh, Libertarian. I don't care. As a Christian, not as a politics, as a Christian, 
How do you evaluate the condition of our nation by the plumb law, by the plumb line of God's law? Even a casual perusal of church history, of world history, will reveal again and again that the culture throughout the years had been saturated with ungodliness. The Roman Empire, replete with ungodliness, expressions of evil, cruel, murderous, incestuous, merciless, tyrannical, pitiless, sexually depraved, or savage words that are used to describe the characteristics of many of the emperors. In our own day and age, how are we doing? We see our nation moving away, and in some cases the church moving away, from the Judeo-Christian ethics that at one time was part and parcel to our nation. You remember the old public service announcement? Some of you will not. Worship at the church of your choice. It used to come on TV. Worship at the church of your choice. You wouldn't hear that today coming from any television broadcast. At least I don't think that you would. In 1996, a book called Slouching Toward Gomorrah, Modern Liberalism and American Decline, Robert Bork wrote that Western culture was in a state of decline and the cause of this decline was modern liberalism and the rise of the new left. Specifically, he attacks modern liberalism for what he describes as dual emphasis on radical egalitarianism and radical individualism. Bork says, the rough beast of decadence now sends us slouching toward a new Gomorrah. We are alike in our country. We are alike in some of our churches. Everyone does what is right in their own eyes. We have an issue coming up this year at the General Assembly that will either make or break the denomination. And if the vote succeeds, it is going to be basically casting away the law of God and what God teaches about homosexuality. We're on the brink. Our denomination is on the brink. And it is because once we fail to give credence to the authority of Scripture, then anything goes. Where is the solution to the decline that we see in our nation? Where is the solution to the decline we see in our churches? We need to remember that wickedness and evil has been a part of our world since the fall. But we don't accept it as Christians. We strive against it as believers. And our battle is day by day, moment by moment, in our struggles against temptation and sin. In our struggles not to compromise what we know to be true. Because isn't it easier to go along and get along than to disagree and stand against the oppression? You know, in our own country where abortion is practiced, it's not really different from the worship of the Canaanite god Moloch in the Old Testament. In both cases, a child was sacrificed. In both cases, a child died as one tried to control their own destiny. There is a monstrous mortuary moving steadily across our country, leaving a path of death. Where is the solution? Well, the good news for us is that our God is on the throne. 
Jerry Packer and John Calvin said that at times it may seem as if there's no benign loving father controlling the universe. You remember what Nietzsche said, that God is dead. Well, he's not. He is just as in control now as he was in the Revolution and the, and the Reformation. The same God rules that ruled back in those days. And we've heard talk about the possibility of the persecution coming against the church, as it has in Canada, as it has in some places in our own country. One church was burnt down because of the pastor's stance against homosexuality. He was outspoken against it, and they burned his church down. Are we going to be afraid in our day and age when good is called evil and evil is called good? Well, again, the Lord is on his throne every second of every minute of every hour of every day of every month of every year and for all eternity. Our God rules our God who is righteous, our God who is wise, our God who is the redeemer of the elect of God. Rules over all things. And we possess God's weapon for change. You possess God's weapon for change. You know what that weapon is? It's the gospel. The weapon for change is the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ. That's the weapon for change. You have it. You possess it. How vocal are you about it? How much do you pronounce Christ and announce Christ and talk about Christ to people? We possess God's weapon in Crete, which is where this, uh, where Titus is at this time, it was indeed a very wicked place. We'll talk about that more in just a minute. But two men went there. Paul, well, Paul went there by himself, really. Titus was later converted. And these two men went about the island preaching. And there was conversions and there was the establishment of churches. Successful, God-blessed. This morning, I have to see that because the gospel is effective to bring positive changes. The gospel is effective. The only way our country is going to change, the only way the churches are going to change, is to come back to the Scriptures and come to repentance. That's it. And because the Word of God is effective for that, the gospel is effective for that, we should pray God to bless His Word. We should pray God to raise up men to preach the Scriptures faithfully. And we should pray that every church where the gospel is ignored and the gospel is not preached, it closes doors. Our God's in revival. Because change is not going to come by hearing stories that make you feel good. It's not going to happen. So three things this morning. The preaching of the gospel, the necessity thereof, the power of the gospel, the results thereof, and the priority of the gospel, the care thereof. In the first place, then, the preaching of the gospel. The gospel in of itself is glorious. Uh, it is glorious in that it came from God. It is glorious in that it is the message of redemption. It is glorious in that it reveals the way, the only way of eternal life and the way to deal with sin. And the way to have comfort and hope in the midst of difficulties. It is glorious because it is a promise for us and for our children. That covenantal promise. I once saw a poster or a bumper sticker. I, think, I can't remember what it was. But anyway, it said this. You may have seen it somewhere in the past. The only thing we can take with us to heaven is our children. I guess you can take your spouse, too. <laughs> but that's not what it said. It said the only thing we can take with us to heaven is our children. 
And it kind of hit me. The covenant promise, I'll be a God to you and to your children after you. The promise is for you and for your children and to many who are afar off. So uh, the gospel then is glorious in and of its own nature. And the gospel also brings changes. It brings radical changes whereby once you respond to the gospel, once you embrace Christ by faith, you go from being one who is outside of the camp of God, one who is an enemy of God, one who is in league with Satan, to one who is now a child of God, one who is uh, in, able to fellowship with God, and one who looks forward to spending eternity with God by his grace. Quite a change. And so that once we come into uh, the church... Uh, affections change, interests change, habits change, priorities change, or attitude towards sin changes because the heart of the Christian has been changed. Attitude toward money, attitude toward possessions, attitude toward everything changes. Not all of a sudden. It's called sanctification. It takes some time. But there should be that initial change that causes us to reevaluate the things that we consider dear. And those things are of the world. And not of Christ and not of heaven as they should be. Crete was a pagan place thoroughly. It's an island of the Mediterranean Ocean, 99 miles south of the mainland of Greece. Been people living there since about 3000 BC. The history of their living there goes way, way back. Uh, the Manaeans civilization lived there. The Manaeans, uh, they were the first advanced, fascinating, first advanced civilization in Europe. They uh, were massive. They had massive buildings, complex tools, uh, artwork, writing system, a massive network of trade. They had indoor plumbing. Uh, they were notable for their large palaces, uh, decorative, and there were frescoes, a very advanced civilization, but also a pagan civilization. They were polytheistic. Their chief god was a goddess who was the god of nature, motherhood, fertility, creation, and destruction. And the fact that Crete was pagan stands to reason. The gospel had never been preached there. You know, you think about the Apostle Paul. Man, that guy, uh, he used to be admired, not worshipped. He used to be admired. He's been in prison. we will not talk, tell you that, but he's gotten out of prison. And he goes back doing the same thing he was doing that got him arrested in the first place, which is preaching the gospel. So he goes to Crete, steps off the boat onto the land, and there's not one Christian on the island. And he goes, determining to preach Christ. And he does so. And remember that he depended so much on Christ in his life as he was not sufficient, he says, of these things in and of himself. And so... Uh, Crete was a very, very wicked place. The gospel had never been there. The gospel needs to go there. Romans 10, 14 through 17. But how were they to call on him in whom they have not believed? And how are they to believe in him of whom they have never heard? And how will they hear without someone preaching? And how are they to preach unless they are sent? As is written, how beautiful are the feet of those who preach the good news. So someone has to be sent. Paul wrote this. Paul took it very seriously. Paul had a passion to see the gospel spread, to see the church spread. He had a passion for that. God called him to it. Christ called him to it. Listen to this. Jesus wants his church to grow. Yeah, that's why he sent Paul out. Go out and preach the good news. Christ would have his church to grow. Not to be stagnant, 
but to grow. That's God's, that's Christ's desire for His church. Uh, and so we should give ourselves to doing all that we can possibly do to grow spiritually, but also to be concerned about the souls of the lost, to invite them to come here and to pray, God, send those who don't know you to us in order that they might hear and in order that they may believe. That should be our passion. The Apostle Paul had that passion as well for the ones who were in Crete. Again, Crete had a reputation of being very ungodly. Uh, most pagan religions do not emphasize holiness. In fact, I would say none of them do. Uh, they had no moral compass. And again, as I said at the introduction, everyone did what was right in their own eyes in this place. And the extent of the depravity was proverbial at Crete. What was the core of their decadence? God wasn't present there. God was not in their schools. God was not in their government. God was not in their courtrooms. God was not in their home. God was not in their families. God was not present there. And so the core then of their depravity, the core then of their actions were the fact that God was not there among them. Uh, they had no knowledge of the God of holiness, no knowledge of the God of righteousness, no knowledge of the God of, of uh, justice and salvation. How will they hear unless someone is sent and brings the word to them? And preaches to them. So it was a very, very pagan place. And it had a reputation of being so. One of their own poets, this is further down, I didn't read it. Uh, one of the Cretans, a prophet of their own, said, Cretans are always liars, evil beasts, lazy gluttons. This testimony is true. They had that reputation. Because there was so much ungodliness there in the place. Well, Paul went to Crete. But we don't know when. There is no record in the book of Acts of Paul going to Crete. He did not go there on any of his missionary journeys. The book of Acts ends with Paul going to Rome to stand before Caesar. And he is in Rome for a time, but he never went to Crete. Except when he was sailing to Rome, he was on a ship, and they rested at a place called Fairhaven because of the, le- because of the weather, and that was on the coast of Crete. But he didn't get off the boat. He didn't go witness and preach for however long he would have done it. He was just there on a boat waiting to go back out to sea to go to Rome. It says in Acts 28, 30 and 31, he lived there two whole years. This is in Rome at his own expense and welcomed all who came to him, proclaiming the kingdom of God and teaching about the Lord Jesus Christ with all boldness. And without hindrance, he was there for two years with a certain amount of freedom. And he left Rome. It was after he was let out of prison the first time that he went to Crete and he preached. That makes sense. And while he was there, his preaching had a great effect upon this man named Titus. And so the preaching of the gospel being uh, necessary, uh, the power of the gospel then, it's clear from this text that God blessed the efforts of Paul's ministry there. If you are involved in ministry, if you are involved in teaching, Sunday school, if you're involved in leading a little prayer group, uh, if you're involved in whatever activity for the church, do you ask God to bless that? Do you pray for those that you teach? For God to bring that word to bear upon their hearts and minds, even little ones. 
Well, the Apostle Paul, we know, was a man of great prayer. And so God blessed. We know that because people were converted and churches were established there on the island of Crete. And at the time of that time, Titus was converted and the gospel began to bring changes in Crete. The gospel is powerfully effective. I hope you believe that to change hearts and minds. It's not up to your argumentation. It's not up to you trying to persuade somebody for them to be converted. It's up to God. Now, you're to be faithful. Uh, Hebrews 4, 12 and 13, For the word of God is living and active, sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing to the division of soul and spirit, of joints and marrow, and discerning the thoughts and intentions of the heart. And no creature is hidden from its sight, but all are naked and exposed to the eyes of him to whom we must give an account. And the one commentator said this, Mighty its power is seen in awakening the conscience, alarming the fears, laying bare the secret feelings of the heart, and causing the sinner to tremble with an apprehension of coming judgment. The Bible awakens us. It is the power of God, the Word, as God blesses that Word. Remember the nature of Scripture. The Old Testament and the New Testament, the nature of Scripture, it is God's Word. You know the text I've quoted many, many times to you. From, a, from a Timothy, where it says, The Word of God is living and active. I mean, all Scripture is inspired by God, profitable for doctrine, reproof, for correction, and for training in righteousness, that the man of God may be adequate, equipped for every good work. Some translations have um, all Scripture is inspired by God. A wooden translation would be, All Scripture is God-breathed. You know, the word before, theopnistos, a compound word in the Greek, God breathed. All Scripture is God breathed. It comes from God Himself. And so that as we read the Scriptures, we understand we are reading the thoughts and words of God that He gave to men to write down. And the same things in the New Testament, which Peter says, holy men moved to God. And he compares the Apostle Paul's writing to Scripture. Some of his writings are hard to understand, he says, as the rest of Scripture. So the Bible then, and of its own nature, it is the Word of God, and it's a powerful Word. It is the Gospel, and we should have the sense to trust it in everything that it says, to believe it. Have you ever wondered why the same sermon can be preached to a group of people, the same people hear the same thing, one is deeply moved by it, the other's not. Why? Because God is sovereign over the effect of His Word. Ephesians 1, starting in verse 3, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in Christ in every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places, even as He chose us in Him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and blameless before him. And love, he predestined us for adoption through Jesus Christ, according to the purpose of his will, to the praise of his glorious grace, with which he has blessed us in the beloved. In him we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses, according to the riches of his grace, which he lavished upon us in all wisdom and sight, making known to us the mystery of his will, according to his purpose, which he set forth in Christ as a plan for the fullness of time, uniting all things to him, whether things are in heaven or things on earth. So how do we prepare to come to worship? How much do we pray throughout the week, Oh, Lord God, 
Oh, I desperately need to change. I desperately need your grace. I am not what you would have me to be. I don't love what you would have me to love. As a matter of fact, I love the things you wouldn't have me to love. I don't behave as I should. Please be with the pastor as he prepares. Work in his heart, grace upon grace, that what he writes is true to the Scripture. Be with him as he delivers that word. May he do so faithfully. And be with thee, O God, as I sit under the proclamation of your word. I pray, O God, that you would bring it to bear upon my life. Do you prepare to come to worship like that? Well, that's what we should be doing. That's exactly how we should be preparing to come. 2 Thessalonians 2, 13 and 14, But we ought always to give thanks to God for you, brothers, beloved of the Lord Jesus, because God chose you as the first fruits to be saved through sanctification. Do you pray for the word then to go out effectively in the hearts and minds of others? Not simply yourself, but others in the church. And you know the needs of some of the people in the congregation. You know the need of Greg and Julene. You know the need of others in the church that are suffering. And I saw Greg Friday. He is suffering. I didn't get to see Juline. She was in the bed. Uh, she had surgery the day before, but Lydia said she was getting along better than she thought she might. And we need to be praying for him every single day. Every day that we have to go before the Lord, we should be bringing Greg up and praying for Greg. So our God then is a God who is sovereign over that word. It goes out according to his good pleasure and it affects change as he determines to do so. And since we know that God has his elect and since we know that God uses the word preached in the lives of those people, we should be praying for them. We should be praying for the preaching of the word. Romans chapter 10 and verse 1. Brothers, my heart's desire is to pray to God for them that they may be saved, you see. Pray to God to them that they may be saved. That here are some people that don't know you. And I pray for them that they may come to a saving faith, a saving knowledge of the Lord Jesus Christ. And listen to this prayer prayed by the Apostle Paul. The letter to the Ephesians, chapter 3. For this reason I bow my knees before the Father, for from whom every family in heaven and on earth is named, that according to the riches of his glory he may grant you to be strengthened with power through his Spirit in the inner man, so that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith, and that you, being rooted and grounded in love, may have the strength to comprehend With all the saints, listen to this, was the breadth and length and height and depth depth, and to know the love of Christ that surpasses knowledge. That you may be filled with all the fullness of God. Ask the elder, would you last pray this for me? Ask your pastor, would you last pray this for me? As Paul's praying it here. I long for you to be filled with an understanding of Christ. That's the pastor's job. That's the elder's job. A passion for the grace of God in the lives of his people. Would that we would pray that. Would that we would do that. And it's much easier and it's much more pleasant to pastor a church where the people are growing in grace and loving Christ. Much, much easier to do that than have to deal with fires. God has blessed me throughout my ministry. I've not had to deal with too many. I know people, they deal with them all the time, all the time. Something going on, some kind of trouble, something, somebody unhappy, somebody, just something going on. Well, the Lord has spared me for that, from that, most, most all of my ministry, and I praise God for that. He's been very, very gracious and very, very kind to me through that. But we need to be praying nonetheless.
O God, may your people be filled with the knowledge of Christ. May they know your depth of your love, O Lord, which goes beyond understanding. And yet, may I know more of it than I do now. The last thing is the propriety of the gospel. And this is a a message we hear. uh, The message, the most important message you will hear in this life ever is the gospel. The most important message you will ever hear in your life here is the gospel. And um, it is a gospel that comes to us by God's grace. Acts 16, 30 and 31. Then he brought them out and said, Sirs, what must I do to be saved? Then he said, Believe on the Lord Jesus Christ. You will be saved and your household. The church has been entrusted with a gospel message. The church has been entrusted with the responsibility of proclaiming the gospel. A little catechism, I mean the confession, chapter 25, article 3. Into this universal visible church, Christ has given the ministry, oracles and ordinances of God for the gathering and the perfecting of the saints in this life, the end of the world, and does by his own presence and spirit, according to his promise, made to them thereunto. The only thing you will ever hear from this pulpit, as long as I am here, unless something terrible happens, is going to be the gospel. It's going to be Christ. That's what we are supposed to do. That's what we are supposed to preach. And it's been given to the church as the church's responsibility to do that. Your reaction is this. Your reaction to the gospel message is of paramount importance. Your reaction to the word of God after you're converted is of paramount importance. Because if you don't adhere to it and obey it as God calls us to, you will be in rebellion against God. So this great responsibility God has given to elders in the church. I'm not going to look at those qualifications at this, but hear this. Good and faithful leadership is absolutely essential for the health and well-being of the church. And that task has been given to Titus. He has appointed God he, to appoint godly leaders for the leadership of the church. If it is misplaced by being put into the hands of men who are not spiritually, who are spiritually immature and who are not, who are simply not qualified or called to, to it by God, it is disastrous for the church. It's a very, very important responsibility as the church chooses its elders, and it says in the scriptures, do not lay hands on a man too quickly. So we're not going to look at that when we do. We'll look at the elder's character, the elder's home life, the elder's temperament, the elder's knowledge, the elder's task. That's going to be for another Sunday next week. It should be for this morning, for us to see the value of the gospel and to see that change comes in the church as the gospel is preached. As people hear and obey the gospel, change comes in our country when the gospel is preached and revival takes place. The great changes that came forth in the Reformation were marvelous changes, but it was by God's work. By faithful men that God raised up and he blessed their efforts. Men like John Calvin, men like Martin Luther, men like John Knox. These weren't just great and powerful men. Certainly they were bold, but they were bold because of God's grace. And we can be bold with the gospel. 
And then, do you, do you have that love for, uh, for the gospel of Christ? Is that something that's in your heart? You reflect on it. You reflect on the great work of God that God has done for you in Christ. You reflect upon that. You glory in that. If you never do, uh, then I don't see how you can be a believer. If you never meditate and praise God for that and thank God for that, and it is that you want to just incorporate it into your life so that it touches everything, then I'll see how you can be a Christian if you don't glory in the gospel. But the great news about the gospel and about our loving God is no matter what you've done, no matter how much you've failed, he welcomes you. If we come in faith and repentance, he welcomes us. And pray for the gospel to bring change in your life personally. Pray for that. Read, as I've said before, and as R.C. Sproul said, read the Bible existentially. Have an interaction with it. What does this say to me? How is God applying this to my life? I think I remember I told you, Dr. Rayburn, um, he was my homiletics professor, practical theology professor, came down to breakfast and sat with another minister. And the man said to Dr. Raven, what did the Lord teach you this morning? It made an impact upon him because he told the class that. What did the Lord teach you this morning? And so you look, what is God saying to me as I read the scriptures? And what would God have me to do as I come to understand? It is a priority in the church that the gospel be preached. It is a priority in the pew that the gospel be believed and obeyed. Let's pray.